walking in obedience. Myron Augsburger, evangelist and former president of Eastern Mennonite University, tells about a question that he received from a civic leader when he was on a preaching mission in a particular city. And the question was, what do you think of sex? And Myron responded by saying, I'm for it, adding, sex is a good gift of God, and that is one of the reasons why I don't want to do anything to cheapen it. Now, the sermon this morning is a continuation of our series on family life, on what it means to live together, to walk as godly persons in the midst of family. And the topic today is not limited to married persons. The topic today is for everyone, single and married, and for all ages a person. In this passage, God calls us to live in holiness and honor with one another. We look at this passage from 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, was written by Paul and Silas and Timothy. And it was written from Corinth during Paul's second missionary journey. The letter was written to the, this young church plant that Timothy had an opportunity to visit after the church was started just a few months. And so Timothy comes back and was able to report to the Apostle Paul how things were going with the, with the church uh, in the Thessalonica. And we discover as we look at this letter that the Apostle Paul is brimming with excitement and enthusiasm that there is and lots of joy over the fact that this church was taking root and that even though it's a seaport city, the believers are walking in obedience in the gospel. And so with that, I would invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8. And in the Pew Bible, this is page 1170. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. You know what instructions we give you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God who gives you 
his Holy Spirit. Now in these opening verses, Paul and his companions instruct the believers at Thessalonica to continue to live the way that Paul had taught them to live when he was present with them, when he was bodily present in the city there. Paul does not immediately jump into giving the ethical instructions, but he first sets the stage for them, that these were the instructions as to how they are to live, to live a life that is pleasing to God. As Jacob Elias, a former pastor and seminary teacher, points out in his commentary, the personal acceptance, quote, personal acceptance of the gospel cannot be separated from the accompanying ought, namely a life of obedience. In other words, the people at Thessalonica, the believers, for all of us here, that we need to live a life that is pleasing to God. Now the Greek word to live comes out of Paul's Jewish background. The word that is used, halakha, is very similar or it has its roots in the Hebrew word meaning to walk. So therefore, Paul is saying they are to walk in obedience to God. They are to continue to walk in light of the good news that they have received as the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are called to live in holiness even as the children of Israel, God's people, in Leviticus, were instructed to live a holy life. And we have then the, the holiness code that is, is sometimes called in the, instructed in the book of Leviticus. And in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul shares his joy about the report that others have expressed about these believers. And this report was, for they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and the true God. Paul, like a wise parent attempting to correct a child, begins then with gentle words of affirmation. Words of affirmation. When he says in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live a way that pleases God as we have taught you. And then he says, and this is where he gives the affirmation, you live this way already and we encourage you to do so even more. So he affirms them in saying they are already living this way, but we want you to continue and we want you to do so even more. Paul says in Verse 1b, we encourage you to do so even more. Paul expects the believers to continue to grow in Christ. When we become a Christian, when we walk with the Lord, it's not simply sitting around and doing nothing. We are expected to grow. Like when we put tomato plants in our garden in the springtime, we expect them to grow and to produce fruit. Likewise, in the Christian life, that God expects us to grow and produce fruit. Paul does not instruct 
the new believers then, to live by a set of rules, but instead to have as the overall principle to live a life in such a way that is pleasing to God. In 2.4, in chapter 2, verse 4, he shares with the believers their motivation that they have as apostles, that this is their motivation. For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. And then he says, referring to God, that he alone examines the motives of our hearts. He alone examines the motives of our hearts, referring to the fact that the total purpose, rather than living by a set of rules, our total purpose is to give praise and honor and glory to God, to please God. Now, specifically then, in verses 4 to 6, that Paul, or verses 3 to 6, Paul and his companions, the writers, issue a call to faithfulness in the sexual area of life. Now, we do not know whether there is a specific situation that Paul is dealing with or whether he's simply referring to this in general. We do know that Thessalonica is a seaport and therefore prostitution and other forms of illicit behavior were probably commonplace in that city. It would be easy then for the new believers who had received Christ to fall back then into that way of life. The society at that time assumed and accepted sexual relationships outside of the marriage covenant. The believers at Thessalonica, in contrast to those who do not know God, the believers are called to a new identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have been called out of a life of sin. They've been called out of the life away from those who participate in those sins and have come now to follow the example of Jesus Christ. They no longer will follow the sins of the flesh, but are called then to follow the way of God and to live in holiness and honor before God and with one another. Again, quoting Jacob Elias, the God who calls people to holiness both enables them to live holy lives and invites a life of moral responsibility. Sanctification is God's work, yet people also need to make choices toward holiness and ethical accountability in their daily lives and put forth effort to do so more. Let me just say a couple words about sanctification. Sanctification is the noun of the verb to sanctify, meaning to set apart, meaning to set apart as was done in the Old Testament where the male Levites and the priests were set apart to do their work in the temple. And as believers, we are called now to be a kingdom of priests and to be set apart 
by our holy lives. And this is a daily and continuing process as the Spirit continues to transform our lives. Commentator Elias says that we participate with God in the process of becoming holy by acts of our will and by the choices that we make. Now, yes, it is God's work, and God works with us, but also we have responsibility by the choices that we make by our will and, and how we intend to live for God. We have been bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore our lives must reflect the reality that indeed that Christ gave his life for us, for our salvation. Our lives need to reflect that reality that Jesus died so that we might live a life of holiness. And in verse 3 then, the writers are very specific about the kind of holiness that God expects of all believers. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, God's will for you is to be holy. And then he says very quickly, so stay away from all sexual sin. And as I emphasized earlier, this instruction is for everyone, for single persons and for those within the covenant of marriage. Now, in the third section of this passage, Paul and his co-workers then and his co-laborers give three motivations, three reasons, three motivations as to why we should live holy lives in the third section, in verses 6b to 8. The first motivation in 6b, for the Lord avenges all such sins as we have solemnly warned you before. And Paul says in his second letter to the Thessalonians, he says in 1, 7b and 8, he says that the Lord Jesus will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who will refuse to the obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. Jacob Elias says, quote, Here Paul conveys the sober truth that God in Christ will ultimately judge people who act immorally or abusively in their sexual relationships, end of quote. Then he gives the second motivation in a positive statement in verse 2. The second motivation, in, excuse me, in verse 7, the second motivation, that God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. And here Paul con continues to emphasize his main assertion in verse 3, that it's God's will for you to be holy. That is God's will, that God calls all of us, all of us and including the new believers, to live holy lives, to walk in obedience in a life of holiness. The last motivation for living holy lives is in verse 8. 
when the Thessalonians sin in this area of life, they are not simply disregarding a missionary pastor like Paul, but they're sinning against their God. They're sinning against their God. And the same is true for us. We're not only disregarding this teaching, but we're sinning against God. And God is the gracious giver, the giver of the Holy Spirit who enables us and helps us to live a life of obedience. And the church planters then remind these believers that the Spirit will give them power, will enable them, and will help them to live a life of holiness and an honor. Now you might be asking, well, how can we apply this today? Or how should we apply this teaching that was given so long ago, that was written all those many years ago to a fledgling church at Thessalonica? Well, I'd like to push out several items. And the first application I'd like to state is that married persons need to work hard to keep the marital bonds strong. Married persons need to work hard to keep that marriage bond strong. So in the midst of child rearing, in the midst of keeping up with the finances, in the midst of paying the bills and going to school and church programs and being involved in taking care of those responsibilities and working in your chosen job or profession and also of taking care of the house and the garden and the yard and doing all those things, yet both spouses need to give priority to keeping the marriage and the marital bond strong. Now that may include going out on a date night. It may include doing things together with, uh, with friends and taking time for each other. And we should also, and speaking specific specifically now to married persons, and that is to be aware of the four great enemies of a happy marriage. John Gottman, in his book, What Prevents Divorce, or What Predicts Divorce, says that complaining, these four, are the four enemies. And that is complaining or criticizing. The second one is contempt. The third, defensiveness. And the fourth, withdrawal. And that these form a cascade toward marital disillusion toward the marriage coming apart and becoming disillusioned with one's marriage. And these four come to the top when there's separation and divorce. Author John Drescher reports the results of a survey of couples who were married 50 years or more. And not one of them in the survey spoke of independence and needing to be concerned about their own development and their own self-actualization. Instead, these couples who were married 50 years or more spoke of commitment to each other and commitment to their marriages in spite of difficulties. 
Repeatedly, they said, we tried to live for each other, and we tried to put the other first. The second point in fleshing this out, and that is adulterous affairs do not just happen. Now on the dashboards of our cars and our trucks, there are red warning lights that come on when there is a major problem, mechanical problem, with our vehicle. And when a red warning light comes on, we should do something about it. Or also, when we are driving and we come to a red traffic light, we know that we better press on the brake. Charles Mylander has written a book entitled Running the Red Lights, and he emphasizes in this book, as I stated, that there are no sudden moral failures. He also emphasizes that each of us has a great capacity to rationalize our behavior. And here are some of the red lights that he presents. Beware of an emotional delight that you continue to receive from one of the opposite gender when that is not taking place with your spouse. An emotional affair and attraction precedes a physical one. Or beware when there are feelings that the other is meeting your needs and that your spouse is not meeting your needs. Beware of lust and fantasy. And he states specifically, husbands who let their minds dwell on lust for another woman through pornography or association at work are headed for the illicit. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 5:28, Jesus said, but I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Number three. Adultery not only hurts the two people involved in the adulterous relationship, but also also the spouse and family members. Paul says in the first part of verse 6 that no one wrong or exploit a brother or sister in this matter. No one wrong or exploit a brother or sister in this matter. I recall the time when I was called to the home of a young couple who related to the church where I was serving as pastor. And I was present at the time, shortly after the time, that the husband discovered and the wife confessed that she had an affair at the place of where she was employed. I recall the bizarreness of that situation and that there was yelling and that there was expression of anger and also there was a deep sense of betrayal that this couple then needed to work through as they then attempted to repair their relationship. And it took dedication. It took lots of intense and hard work to repair the significant damage to their marital relationship that came to light on that day. 
in the adultery that David committed with Bathsheba. David sinned not only against Bathsheba, but also against her husband Uriah. And then David needed to do something about Uriah, and he engineered the murder of Bathsheba's husband. Back in the 1980s, before the merger of the General Conference Mennonite Church and the Mennonite Church to form Mennonite Church USA, each of those bodies in separate sessions, separate delegate sessions, adopted a resolution on sexuality. And the Mennonite Church document came to, came to be known as the Purdue Statement because it was in Purdue meeting in Purdue, Indiana, where the delegates met that affirmed this document. And the Purdue Statement includes a call to affirmation. And it says, in part, we affirm that sexuality is a good and beautiful gift of God, a gift of identity and a way of being in the world as male and female. We affirm that sexual drives are part of our lives, but that the satisfaction of those drives is not the chief good in life. We affirm both the goodness of singleness and the goodness of marriage and family in the Lord. And then this Purdue statement also includes a place of confession. It states in part, we repent of our wrong view of the body, which keeps us from speaking openly and honestly about our bodies, including our sexual nature. We confess our fear and repent of our absence of love toward those with different sexual orientations and of our lack of understanding for their struggle to find a place in church and society. And then the call to covenant is the last part of the statement. Again, it says in part, we covenant with each other to study the Bible together and expand our insight into the biblical teachings related to sexuality. We understand the Bible to teach that genital intercourse is reserved for a man and woman united in a marriage covenant and that violation even within the covenant, even within the relationship, such as wife battering, is a sin. It is our understanding that this teaching also precludes premarital, extramarital, and homosexual genital activity. We further understand the Bible to teach the sanctity of the marriage covenant and that any violation of this covenant is sin. Since the adoption of these statements, much of the focus in our denomination, much of the focus has been the discussion on homosexual activity, but also as my sermon pointed out this morning, we need to be aware that it is not only homosexual activity, but also premarital and extramarital sexual relationships, that that is outside, that all of these are outside the call to holiness that God calls for in the life of believers. Now I agree with Myron Augsburger that sex is one of God's 
good gifts and that we should do nothing, as Myron said, that we should do nothing to cheapen this wonderful and this good gift. We, along with the Thessalonians, are called to walk in obedience, to walk in obedience to the commands of our God to live in holiness and honor that God, by the gift of the Spirit, will give us the strength and the power to do so. Amen. May it be so. We'll share in a closing song.